Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're all well. I hope you're all in good spirits. Good to see you all. Um, Chris, uh, we actually planned for me to come up here to preach. Though Chris is unwell, do pray for him that he'll be restored quickly to full strength and power. I thought last week he preached a tremendous word. I really enjoyed that word. I thought it was Chris, you know, that the fullness, the zenith of his powers there. It was, I enjoyed it. And if you weren't here, the question is, where were you? That was a great message. And, uh, you know, if you, if you have access to the podcast, please, uh, I would encourage you to, to listen to that message again. Because he kicked off our Christmas series called The Beginning from the Book of John. And he presented to us the big reveal, John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And and here was the point, that this logos, which was to the the Greeks some kind of ethereal being involved in creation on one side, and to the Jews represented the law, actually Jesus is come in the flesh. And the point, the beauty of it was that you're saying now that it's not some ethereal being. You're saying now it's not the law, but it's Jesus. That was the big reveal. The Son of God, full of grace and truth. And like I said, if you listen to the podcast, you can get the rest of that message. So that was the beginning. So today we're going to consider who Jesus really is and the impact of his birth as was prophesied by Isaiah some 700 years before. And it's interesting because uh, if you do a little bit of reading about Isaiah, he's called the Prince of Prophets. And in fact, you know, there's, I think, 66, what's it, uh, it were chapters there. And you can split it down into 27 are all about judge, well, bigger pardon, 39 are all about judgment. And the other 27 are all about hope. So, it's interesting as I was researching this because Chris said to me, um, well, Dennis, um, I'm going to call, start with uh, the beginning. So you could call your message the beginning of the end. Now, I am reminded, I'm, I believe that it's a Winston Churchill. I believe it was November... And I have the date here, I think the 2nd, 1942, wasn't there personally, obviously. (laughs) But he, at the Lord Mayor's luncheon at the mansion house, said this, after the victory of Alexander and Montgomery, as they forced back Rommel at El Alamein, he said this, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Well, the reality is this, that this baby, Jesus, who Isaiah prophesies 700 years before his actual birth, for the kingdom of darkness, it was the beginning of the end. This was God's plan, that because of what happened in the garden, And I think it was Rick, was it Rick? Oh, yeah, it was Rick. Was it Rick? Um, No, no, the the guy from... 
Lucas, now before him. Trevor. No, not Trevor. <laughs> It'll come to me. Guy was... Huh? You see, never depend on a congregation to help you. <laughs> they will lead you astray, particularly the pastors. <laughs> but the guy was up here, and his wife was Lulu, so it's... Rick. It was Rick, I was right. Rick and Lulu, I was right. You see there? <laughs> Rick and Lulu, he talked about... Now I've lost my point. <laughs> ah, yes. He talked about Genesis 3.15. It's good, you see, I'm up here just talking with you, really, you know. I preach a little later. But he talked about Genesis 3.15, the fact that because of what Adam and Eve did in disobeying God, God had to, have to, had to hatch another plan. And that plan was that, yes, the enemy would bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. So... This is how I kind of see it. The enemy had some inkling that God had a plan, but he didn't know what the plan was. So I imagine down the ages, he was like through his network, he was watching, looking to see where this child would come from. And he would have his, I use the term, sentinels moving throughout the land, seeing where this child would come from. And we read in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, this. Come with me now. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So then, who is this child? Well, we know it's Jesus. This is the child, as I said, that was spoken of or inferred of in the garden. Now, here's the point. When God in his wisdom now, he had this issue. You see, when Satan came and tempted us, Adam and Eve, and they ate of the fruit, he couldn't use the same deception and deceit to take back the authority that Satan had taken by default from us. So he had to devise a plan that would maintain his integrity as a moral being and so bring back the authority that was taken from us in the garden and provide a way for us to come back into relationship with God. Now, the wonderful thing is this, that God decides now, hmm, let me look and see if I can find a man in the earth who will help us. So, there's Noah. But Noah's doing all right, but then Noah gets drunk. And his sons see his nakedness. Well, one of his sons. The others kind of cover him up. So he's kind of disqualified. He says, all right, 
Abraham, Genesis 12, the beginning of the patriarchal age. So Abraham's doing good, and he puts his trust in Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. So there's a theocratic blessing on him. But as you know, if you read the chapter there in Genesis 12, that when God blesses him, there's a famine in the land, and he goes down to Egypt, and he gets himself in a whole load of trouble. You know, he says to his wife, you are beautiful. And I'm sure Sarah said, oh, thank you. But he said, but however, the Egyptians will see it, and they will want to kill me. So therefore, say that you are my sister. And he gets in trouble down there. So in a sense, God has to kind of pass him by and look to a nation. From Abraham, we get Isaac. From Isaac, we get Jacob. From Jacob, we get the 12 sons. We have a nation. But the nation failed to fulfill what God had planned. They couldn't live up to what God has set before them. So you know what? God in his creative genius decides to come himself. And you need to imagine the enormity of this because it's captured in one of our carols. God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made a man. God comes himself. He limits himself. He pours out of himself all his glory and his majesty. And he comes and he's planted as a seed in Mary. And if you read it in Luke, it says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and that which you're born of you will be of God. Incredible. So then, this is the babe. And Isaiah 9, 6, we can ask the question, what will he be called? We read this, and he will be called what? The Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So let's consider these different aspects of who this Jesus is. First and foremost, he's the wonderful counselor. Friends, I've had the privilege of working as a chaplain with the YMCA. I left them, I think, in October. And as I just interact with people, as you go throughout life, you realize how much people need wisdom, how much they need to have someone alongside them. the, The challenge for me is this, that in the garden, we decided to become independent of God. Instead of being creatures, we became the creator. And that was God's, never God's intention for us. We were supposed to be dependent on him, which is a very difficult thing for us as human beings because everything within us causes us to want to be independent. But God actually designed us to be dependent on him. And that is the complete antithesis to the way our society works because we're always proud of people who can work it out themselves. They don't need any help. One of the biggest things I learned coming to Vineyard was it was okay to say that you need help. And as I worked with the team, I realized that everybody was very transparent. I, if people were going through stuff, 
They weren't doing the holy man of God, woman of God, you know, never having any problems, never having sex. No, they were like sharing their stuff. This was new to me. Because the kind of church I used to go to, man, everybody looked bright and shiny. <laughs> no problems in their marriage. No issues to deal with. And as I said, we come to life group or home group or connect group, as we call it. And we would worship the Lord. We would read the word. We would pray. And then when people ask, well, uh, anyone any issues to share? Great. Let's have some cake. And that was it. And what happened is people just took their stuff home. This week, I was traveling down to London. Came into the platform, and I thought, oh, that's familiar. It looks, looks like someone I know. It was someone I, I went to church with many years ago. She no longer goes to church. She unfortunately divorced and now has a partner. And we just began to discuss our experience of that particular church. And I realized that what it was is that everybody was looking good. And if you had any problems, people were trying to sort you out. But actually, at the end of it, you just felt worse, not better. And I just felt in my heart, here's another person that loves Jesus, who now no longer is, is walking with Jesus effectively because of the, how they've been scandalized by the way they've been treated in church. God's intention was for the church to be a place where it's safe for you to fail, where you will receive grace and mercy and people will stand with you and walk with you as you come back to strength. And the reality is we are dealing with people so there will be brokenness. Not everything will work out. Not every prayer will be answered. Not every person will get healed. Not every marriage will work out. But it's still a place that you can come and receive grace and mercy for your time of need. And Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And here's the point. As a counselor, this is what he'll do. He'll fight your corner when no one else does. He'll fight your corner when no one else does. Jesus said this, my father is greater than all and none can pluck you out of my hands. I recall four or five years ago, I was dismissing the job that I used to do as a, uh, a teacher. It was not nice, it was horrible. And I remember, you know, folks said, well, maybe you should take it to tribunal, and I did, and the thing failed. And then I said, well, what are you going to do next? And God spoke to me so clearly from 1 Peter chapter 2, I think it was about 23. He said, instead of Jesus, that he had no guile in his mouth, but yet it said he committed himself to God who knows all things and judges righteously. And God spoke to me, he said, look, man, look, son, you just commit yourself to me and move on because I'm the righteous judge and I know the truth. And that released me. It didn't mean that all the pain had disappeared, but it just released me. He said, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And that's the wonderful counselor who will stand up for you. He's also the one who believes in us when no one else does. You see, 
A counselor back then was the person that would be there to, to speak on your behalf, to stand for you, to believe in you when no one else does. And you need to know that you have a counselor in Jesus who always believes in you and he knows all your stuff. And he affirms you when no one else does. He's a counselor who speaks on your behalf. We read in, I think it's Matthew, and it says, when you have to go before judges and this, don't worry about what you say because God's going to give it to you in that very hour. But he also says of Jesus that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he's interceding for you and for me that your faith may not fail in the midst of the trial of the test that you are in. He's interceding to you before God that you would come through and you would break through whatever you're going through. He's praying for you as he prayed for Peter that your faith may not fail. He holds us when we cry. He holds us when we cry. Whatever pain, whatever hurt, whatever disappointment, whatever loss, he's a counselor that will hold you if you let him. And you've got to let him. You've got to let him hold you. And this is not the comfort from human beings. This is the comfort that comes from the Father. And he wants to hold us. And as a counselor, he holds us when we cry. And hear this. He speaks the truth to us about who we really are. And you shall know the truth, the scripture says, and the truth will set you free. You see, friends, you and I have lies that we live under. And we have lies that have been given to us that we've received. But Jesus comes alongside and he speaks the truth to you. That you are my child. You're born not of the will of man or of blood, but you're born of God. You belong to me. I purchased you with my blood. You are mine. And I love you and I'm for you. And he speaks the truth to you about who you really are so that you might reject the truth that is given to you by the social mirror or by people reflecting their stuff on you. You're not your habits, you're not your past. You're my son, you're my daughter. And the plans I have for you are plans, as I said, to, to bless you, to give you a future, to give you a hope. But he's also the mighty God. And as the mighty one, he is one, sovereign over the world. What the Psalm 24, one tells us, the earth is the, finish it for me, the earth is the, the Lord and all that dwells therein. Remind yourself of that as we go into election year and as our politicians will be you know, giving their manifestos to us, etc., etc. Who you vote for is your business. But the reality is this, that Jesus, his manifesto, Isaiah 61, 3, he came to bind up the brokenhearted. He said to set the captives free. He came to give a garland of praise for those who have a spirit of heaviness, and he's never failed to do it. Unlike some of our politicians. So he's sovereign in our world. 
And whatever's going on out there, you know, Radio 4, blah, 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 because I'm at that age, that's what we listen to. (laughs) You know, when you're young, it's Radio 1, you know, Radio 2, Radio 3, really serious, Radio 4, you know, you're in your 50s. (laughs) Isn't it? And, you know, and you hear it, and... You know, I was watching Question Time with my daughter and I couldn't watch it anymore, you know, because they're just there and it's blah, 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 and blah, 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 blah. No, it's your fault. No, it's his fault. And blah, blah, blah. We need to pray for them because the scripture tells us to do so. 1 Tim, I think it's chapter 2. 1 and 2. Pray for all those having authority over us that we might have a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and sincerity. It's a good thing it's there because I'd want to say other things, but we can't do that. But pray for them. But just remember this. That God is sovereign. He still rules the world. He is not sitting there in angst wondering what Mr. Obama or Mr. Cameron or what's going on in the world. He's not there in angst. He knows. He's sovereign over the affairs of man. Men. Psalm 2. Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Maybe the prince of preachers in the 19th century, in his book, The Treasure of David, he said that this psalm is the psalm of the Messiah Prince. It's the psalm that they quote in Acts chapter 4, 29. You know, and give you the picture, it says that the, the wicked are there plotting against God, saying, hmm, let us see how we will destroy them, how we will marginalize Christianity, how we will get rid of religion, how we will get rid of all of that stuff. And what the book says, what it says is, God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He's there, really? And you think you're so clever? The scripture tells us that the foolishness of God is greater than all the wisdom of men. (laughs) So when you see these guys who are, these people who are proud in imagination, their hearts, just remember that the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. Why? Because it says he has put his king upon his holy hill in Zion. Zion's a picture of the church. And who's the king? It's Jesus. And he says, ask of me and I will give you the heathens for my inheritance and the ends of the earth for my possession. So give homage, you kings. In other words, God's plan is that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, every knee will bow and every eye will confess that he is Lord. And he still rules in the affairs of men and he is not, as it were, outflanked by any of the activities that are going on in the affairs of our world. He's still sovereign because he's the mighty God. He's sovereign over sin, over sickness, over Satan, over death. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that this Jesus became sin for us, that in him we might become rightly related to him. So he's dealt with sin. Colossians there, 2, 13 and 15. I remember Rick talking about it. Got the name right this time. And he said it. He said that there at the cross, All the stuff that was hostile to you and I in terms of our sin, that the enemy would say, look, there you are, there you are. Jesus removed it once for all. He erased it through his blood on the cross. And then it says he goes on to make an open show of principalities past triumphing over it. So he deals with sin. He deals with sickness. He deals with Satan because, as I always say, he went down into Hades and Satan like, oh my gosh, you're here. And he came down, I always get it in my mind, you see, I kind of see Rambo with the, head, you know, the thing around his head and the big belt there, I'm here. 
and he gets the authority back and then it's and then he lets get everybody out and they all, the saints rise up and go out and then they stop over into Jerusalem because they haven't been around there for 500 years to just have a look and see how things are and then they go on up to glory. Yeah? See, it's in the book. <laughs> That's our Jesus. He's conquered sin, he's conquered Satan, he's conquered sickness and death itself. He says, death? I love it. If you read the scriptures there, when you read about the resurrection of Jesus, it says that the cloth that was around his face was neatly rolled up. I just think that's great. It's just that it was neatly rolled up. It wasn't thrown down. It's like, hmm, death, you cannot hold me. Took everything off. And then he just walked out. Yay! You see? Death couldn't hold him, man, because it says it was just folded up there. It could not hold him. Yeah. He, he conquered it. You see, it's the final fear that we have. But you know, friends, as Jesus begins to work in your life and you realize that death is just a gateway into eternity, he dealt with it. He couldn't hold him. He's sovereign over death. And he's sovereign over our lives. He is Lord. And whatever's going on in your life, he is Lord. Don't give way to those negative thoughts where you, as Chris would put it, you judge God through your circumstances. Friends, your circumstances do not determine what God is going to do in your life. It's a process that you're going through. The reality is that God is bigger than my circumstance. He's bigger than your circumstance. He is Lord. He reigns. He rules. He's in control. And you see, ultimately, if things go wrong and you die, you go straight into the presence of God. So you never lose. And whatever it is you're going through, it will pass. Because he's the mighty God. But he's also the everlasting father. The greatest tragedy of, modern, of this, our modern generation is fatherlessness. It impacts our society at every level. In fact, the last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 6, says this, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, I love this. He's the everlasting father. Well, One of the things I've realized, you know, as a pastor and as, you know, as you're out in the community, you talk with people, is how broken people are. And I was talking to one lady, a young woman, you know, helped out with her marriage, blah, 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 blah. She got married and I was coordinating. And when I listened to her, father abandoned, mother not nurturing, and then I talk to other people at the wedding and I'm thinking to myself, oh my Lord Jesus, how broken our society is. People struggling because of a lack of nurture or a lack of affirmation. And of course, some of our earthly fathers may have been absent or critical or controlling, abusive, violent, passive, whatever. However, when you become a follower of Jesus, you have an everlasting father from whom every family, in name, family names its name. And 
He's not like an earthly father because he affirms you for who you are. In other words, he loves you not for all of the things that you do. Not for all the talent that you have. Not for all the qualifications that you've achieved. Not because of your ethnicity. He loves you because you are his son and daughter. And the main challenge in my own life is to stay in that place of being a son and not living out of my roles. And we all have roles. Mum, her dad, pastor, you know, teacher, lawyer, doctor. Those are all roles that you play, but that's not who you are. The major thing that Jesus is trying to do in my life is to make sure that I stay as a son. Because when I stay as a son, whether I do a good job here or not today, doesn't matter. He still loves me, not on the basis of my performance. If you live out your role, there'll be times when the people that love you will throw stones at you because you didn't measure up or you didn't deliver. But as your heavenly father, who's an everlasting father, his affirmation is upon you because of who you are. His affection is upon you because of who you are. In other words, you are worth listening to. You have his attention. I think one of the deepest needs that we have as human beings is to be heard. I think Stephen R. Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he actually picked it up. Seek first to understand rather than be understood. Most of us want to be understood. Yeah? But when you come to God, your heavenly father, he always understands you. He always understands you. You always have his attention. And if you let him, he'll speak words into you. Because the scripture tells us this, that the thoughts that he has toward you are great. In fact, many are the thoughts that he has to. Great are the sum of them. They are more than the sand on the sea. And most of the time, we're thinking that God is there wanting to tell us off. We do that without much help from him. What he wants to do is affirm you and give you attention and affirm who you are as his beautiful daughter or his handsome son and affirm you and release you from that sense that you have to perform for him. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more pleasing to him. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more pleasing to him because of what Jesus has done. Okay, we need to finish this. Richard is looking at me. <laughs> and of course, he's our advocate. He stands up for us. Finally, and by the way, that's all unconditional. And finally, he's the prince of priests. Now, it's interesting here because the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which has a far greater meaning than just the absence of discord. When Jesus said to his disciples, my peace I give to you, that's John 14, 27. He was saying to them, as he says to you and to me, I give you my completeness, my wholeness, health, peace, welfare, security, soundness, tranquility, 
prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, and the absence of agitation or discord. He's the Prince of Peace. And in Jesus, he personifies all of these, and these are the things that he wants to bless you with. And as you come into this Christmas period, Christmas can be the best of times, to use Dickens, and it can be the worst of times. Because for those who would want to have wonderful family, but their life or their family is in disarray or dysfunctional, Christmas only, as it were, accentuates the fact that you're not as you should be. For some people who are no longer with their partners, it will be the first Christmas they've been on their own. But whether it's the best of times or the worst of times, he's the Prince of Peace. And his peace he will give to you. And he who began the good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Band, if you could come up, please. You know, there was a devout man in the Bible named Simeon. And God had promised him that he would not die until he saw Jesus. And one day he goes into the temple led by the Spirit. And Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up there, as was the right thing to do according to the law. And there he is. And by revelation... Simeon sees the Christ. Now, he's just a baby. And this is what he said. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. That child was the beginning of the end for the kingdom of darkness. That child was Jesus who shines in the darkness. That child is Jesus. Indeed, it says he has princely power. And his reign and his government, please stand, friends. His reign and his government will have no end. And this Jesus can be to you, and I pray he will be to you, a wonderful counselor, I pray that he will hold you where you need to be held. I pray he will stand for you wherever you need to be stood for. I pray he'll be the mighty God to you. Wherever you need to know his reign and his rule, pray that he will be mighty for you. Wherever you feel fatherless, he may be the father who affirms you, whose affections upon you, whose attentions upon you, and is your advocate. And I pray that he would be the Prince of Peace. That he would be all of those things. He would give you completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness and fullness, rest and harmony. Father, we bless you that you sent Jesus the exact representation of your nature. The one 
who sits down at your right hand having made purification for our sins. And we thank you that by the power of your spirit, your Jesus, our Jesus, is becoming that wonderful counsellor. We thank you that he is the mighty God. We thank you that he is the everlasting Father. And we ask you that his peace will begin to infuse our lives as we become more like him. And may we over this Christmas time know your peace, that perfect peace in our lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.